if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. Welcome to Considering Catholicism. I'm Greg Smith, your guide to the faith, life, and civilization that is historic Catholic Christianity. A few episodes back, we began an occasional series on the Eucharist, the Sacrament of Holy Communion. In episode 36, Making the Eucharist Matter Again, Corey Licatos and I discussed the Eucharistic revival that the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops have called us to over the next three years. The bishops are concerned that too many Catholics today no longer understand or practice this sacrament in a, a coherent way that is consistent with the church's rather constant teaching on it since the days of Peter and Paul. And so, on the podcast, we're doing our part, maybe a, a dozen episodes on and off over the next several months, exploring and explaining the Eucharist. And because this podcast speaks to both Catholics and those who are not but are considering Catholicism, I want to clear up many of the misunderstandings that Protestants or secularists might have over what the Catholic Church actually teaches about the Eucharist. Now, for my Protestant friends, and for myself back when I was a Protestant, Christian doctrine begins and ends with whatever Scripture teaches. Sola Scriptura, Scripture alone, was the battle cry of the Reformation. So, in this episode, I want to begin to explore some of, not all of, because that will take more than one episode, but some of what we can learn from the Bible about the significance of the Eucharist. But before we dive right into a bunch of Old Testament passages, I'd like to set the stage by explaining how Catholicism reads the Bible. Because whenever you interpret a text of any kind, you have to have a a consistent set of rules for how to read it. And this set of rules for reading a text has a fancy name, hermeneutics. You have a hermeneutic approach, a, a hermeneutical lens. You establish hermeneutical ground rules whenever you approach a text. Let me give you an analogy that might help make sense out of this. In the United States of America, over the last couple of centuries, we've had this running conflict over how to read our own Constitution. The Constitution of the United States, finally ratified in 1789, is the charter or contract between the states that establishes the structure and powers of our federal government. And the conflict has to do with hermeneutics. What exactly are the rules for reading, for interpreting the Constitution? Should it, as conservatives believe, be read literally in its original form and thus limit federal government power? Or should it, as progressives believe, 
be understood as more of a living document, a, a starting point that can be interpreted and adapted in light of current events to give the federal government whatever powers we think that it needs at any given moment. You see, these are two very different hermeneutics, and they've already brought us to one civil war, and hermeneutic conflicts may bring us to another civil war at some point. So, back to the Bible. What exactly are the hermeneutical principles that should govern how we read and interpret it? Because that will affect where and how we see the Eucharist in Scripture. Fortunately, the Catholic Church has some very clearly defined hermeneutical principles that have withstood the test of time over thousands of years. One of them is that the Old Testament always points to the New Testament. The Old Testament contains the teachings of the New Testament in potential form. Think of a garden. When the little plants start to come up out of the ground, the future flowers and fruit are already present because they're contained in the infant plants. So you can look at them up close and see the little buds and pods emerging on the stems. After a few months, those open up, they unfurl, they emerge. The flowers and fruits then are on full display. And so the Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraph 122 for those of you taking notes, tells us that the books of the Old Testament bear witness to the whole divine pedagogy or teaching of God's saving love. In them, too, the mystery of our salvation is present in a hidden way. See, that gives us a hermeneutical principle, a ground rule for reading the Bible. The flowers of doctrine in the New Testament are always present in an infant form within the Old. So, the Eucharist is not an innovation of the New Testament. When Jesus served his disciples the Last Supper, he wasn't inventing something new. He was unfolding or revealing something that had been emerging like an infant flower over the course of the Old Testament. And that gives us a hermeneutical project to go through the Old Testament books, looking for the seeds and stems and buds that we find unfurled in the New Testament. Now, before we do that, the Catechism of the Catholic Church gives us a few other hermeneutical tools. In paragraphs 115 through 119, the Catechism refers to a set of hermeneutical principles that go all the way back to the early church. It tells us that we can read any given passage of Scripture from five different vantage points. The first is always the literal historical. For example, when we read in Exodus that God led Moses and the Israelites through the Red Sea to escape Pharaoh's army, we can understand it to mean exactly that. In fact, the Catechism says that, quote, all other senses of sacred scripture are based on the literal. So, we start by assuming that the text means exactly what it says. But there are four other vantage points. The Catechism tells us that we can also see Old Testament passages as spiritual signs or even allegories pointing us to New Testament truths. So, for example, the Passover meal points to the Last Supper 
And the crossing of the Red Sea can also be seen as a foreshadowing of baptism. And we can read Old Testament passages through a moral lens. So, for example, we should trust the Lord even when we're in desperate situations like the Israelites on the shore of the Red Sea. And finally, we can read Old Testament passages eschatologically, pointing toward God's endgame for humanity and the universe. So, we can see the crossing of the Red Sea as hinting at how God will ultimately deliver us through death to our eternal home. Okay, we're a long way into this episode and I haven't even gotten to the Eucharist yet. But I wanted to set the stage because using these Catholic hermeneutical principles, we begin to see the Eucharist hinted at throughout the Old Testament and unfolding fully in the New. So, using all of the principles and vantage points that we just described, here's a consistent theme that runs throughout the Old Testament. God created us to be in fellowship, in communion with him. And since that communion was broken by our own disobedience in Eden, God has been working to reestablish that communion through a plan of salvation that has often been hinted at in various encounters. And those encounters often involve fellowship meals. In fact, Scripture often hints to us that our salvation will come to us through, weirdly enough, suppers. It's almost as if God was hinting throughout the Old Testament that we would someday find him more fully through, well, food. So, let's start at the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. God creates the man and the woman, and he puts them in a garden. God comes often to commune with them directly in the cool of the day. Now, within this communion space, they are fed. In fact, they are allowed to eat from any fruit in the garden, except one, the fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. As you know, that becomes a a test of obedience, which they fail. But stop for a moment and think about how startling this image is. Look, God could have set up any sort of obedience test. He could have said, don't say bad words. Don't step over some line in the dirt at the edge of the garden. Don't ride around on the unicorn. Whatever. But what he actually does is our first hint, our first sign pointing toward the Eucharist. Because in Eden, communion with God and the health and life and peace that it brings is contingent upon eating that which is licit or lawful, not that which is illicit. And when they break that communion by eating what is not allowed— Adam's punishment is that he will painfully labor to feed himself in a fallen world. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, and an angel with a flaming sword is set to guard it so that they won't creep back in and eat from the tree of life. That life-giving food, which is meant for eternal communion with God, is kept back from them until such a time when God himself will make it available again. So, using the Catholic hermeneutical principles described in the Catechism, 
we can see hints and foreshadows of the communion that God will someday provide when he gives us himself as the bread of life under a new law, a new covenant brought about by the new Eve who gives birth to a new Adam. You see, it's all there from the beginning, the seeds of the Eucharist. Consider what happens next in the Old Testament. In the very next chapter, Genesis 4, we're told that Adam and Eve have two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain is a farmer, Abel is a shepherd. And they both bring a sacrifice to the Lord. But Abel brings what God asks for, a blood sacrifice from his flock. It is the legal or licit sacrifice because it points forward to the life-giving sacrifice of God himself in Christ, making his body and blood the food that gives us life. But Cain brings the illicit sacrifice, a sacrifice of pride and disobedience. And when God expresses that he is pleased with Abel's sacrifice and displeased with Cain's, Cain becomes jealous and murders Abel. We read that when God confronts Cain over his crime, God says that Abel's blood cries out from the ground. Now, St. Paul refers to this very passage in the New Testament book of Hebrews when he says that Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. In other words, the blood of Abel spilled over the broken communion of the Old Testament is a sign pointing toward the restoration of communion through the perfect blood of Christ that brings life from the ground where it fell beneath the cross. You know, none of the insights that I'm sharing with you in this episode are original. They're the fruit of the Catholic Church's reading of Scripture over two millennia. In fact, St. Gregory the Great, who was Pope during the century after the fall of the Roman Empire in the West, pointed out this connection between the Eucharist and the blood of Abel in Genesis 4. He said that when we receive the blood of the Eucharist, we cry out and proclaim faith in the grace of Christ, which is an inversion of the blood of Abel, which called out for vengeance upon Cain. Thus, Pope Gregory the Great said, the imperfect cry of Abel's blood points forward to its perfection in the chalice of Christ's forgiveness in the Eucharist. Now let's consider Abraham whose name in Hebrew literally means the father of nations. At least three incidents from his life foreshadow the sacrifice of Christ in the Eucharist. The first is the rather strange appearance of a priest of the Lord named Melchizedek in Genesis 14. Abraham and his army have just won a battle over rival pagan raiders when this man, who, who the Bible describes as the king of Salem arrives. Now, Salem was understood to be the town or small city that stood on or near Mount Moriah, where God would later tell Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. Many centuries later, Abraham's descendant King David would make it his capital city, Jerusalem. And this Melchizedek isn't just the king of this town that would become Jerusalem. He is described as a priest of the God Most High, Abraham's God, David's God, our God, 
And when Melchizedek arrives, he does two things. First, he blesses Abraham, which is what prophets do. He therefore holds three simultaneous offices, prophet, priest, and king. Melchizedek is, in fact, a foreshadowing of Christ himself, who is our perfect prophet, our perfect priest, and our perfect king. St. Paul himself draws this connection between Melchizedek and Christ. Now, the second thing that this precursor of Christ does when he arrives is to bring out bread and wine and serve it to Abraham, and thus, by extension, to all of his descendants, to all of us. Of course, Abraham didn't know this was a foreshadowing of the Eucharist, but in hindsight, we can see it as clearly as if in daylight. The second incident from the life of Abraham that I'd like to mention is not often associated directly with the Eucharist, but we can see its clues hidden within it. Abraham, whose tribe was nomadic, is camped in the Judean hill country at a place called the Oaks of Mamre. Now, one day he sees three visitors approaching. Abraham somehow discerns that these are not ordinary visitors, but as St. Augustine pointed out, the Lord himself. In fact, since the earliest days of the church, this incident is seen as an Old Testament hint of the Trinitarian nature of God. The text itself makes this clear because it speaks of them in the singular, and it uses the Hebrew term Jehovah or Yahweh for the proper name of God. And what does Abraham do when the Lord comes to call? Well, he prepares a meal. Now, you might be thinking that this doesn't point to the Eucharist because in this case, it's Abraham preparing a meal for the Lord, not the other way around. But what we do see here is a profound moment in which Abraham, in whom is contained all of his descendants, including Jesus of Nazareth and you and I, enjoys fellowship or communion with a physical manifestation of the Lord at a meal. It looks backward to Eden, forward to Christ, and even further forward to the eternal fellowship of the new Jerusalem, in which we will dwell with the Lord and enjoy the fruit of the tree of life. But perhaps the most famous foreshadowing of the Eucharist in Abraham's life is when God commands him to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on a particular mountain. Now, Isaac is Abraham's promised son, the promised son, the heir from whom descendants as numerous as the stars of the sky will spring, and through whom the covenant of communion with God will be extended. Now, Abraham is terrified, devastated by this command, but he is faithful and he obeys, trusting that somehow, some way, God will not fail to keep his covenant promises. And so, Abraham and Isaac leave home for a three-day journey, descending into what must have felt like death. Now, if three days into death sounds familiar to you, it should, because this is pointing us toward the three days that another descendant of Abraham, another only son, will descend into death. 
And the mountain that God leads them to for the sacrifice, Mount Moriah, is the very mountain that that other son will be sacrificed upon on a Roman cross. You know what happens, how God tells Isaac, who has started to figure out what's going on, that God will provide the sacrifice. And you know that at the very moment when Abraham raises the knife, God reveals a ram caught in a nearby thicket. They sacrifice the ram, and Abraham names the place Yahweh Yireh, or Jehovah Jireh, which is Hebrew for the Lord provides. And all of this is a sign of how God does provide for us, how he sacrifices his only son to provide for us, to restore and preserve and extend communion with him to and through his body and blood, which becomes the church itself, spread out through space and time, like the stars of the night sky or the grains of sand on the beach. Eucharistic clues run throughout the life of Moses. But like Abraham, I'll just mention three for today. The first two are rather obvious and well-known. The first is this. On the night that they are to leave Egypt, the night of the tenth plague upon the firstborn, God instructs the Hebrews to mark the doorposts of their homes with the blood of a lamb so that the judgment of death will pass over them. And then they are told to prepare a special meal, a a meal to go, so to speak. Since they are leaving in haste, they are to make bread without yeast because they don't have time to let it rise. This meal, the Passover meal, becomes the most important feast in the Jewish liturgical calendar. And it is the Passover meal that Jesus has with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. So, What we know as the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, is a fulfillment or an unfolding of the Passover feast instituted by Moses. The second and almost equally well-known Eucharistic clue in Moses' life is the way that God feeds the Israelites as they're wandering in the desert. Each morning, they gather quail, birds, that have fallen from the sky and something called manna off the ground. In Hebrew, the word manna literally means, what is it? It it was like a kind of flaky substance that laid on the ground like the morning dew. They were to gather it up and make it into bread. And so, God sustained them in the wilderness by providing their daily bread. And so, this points forward to how the bread of life, Christ's body, sustains us in the wilderness of a fallen world. Now, there are plenty more Eucharistic hints woven through the story of Moses. But one that's unfamiliar to most Christians is what might be lightheartedly called the divine picnic. It occurs in Exodus 24. The Israelites are camped at the base of the mountain of the Lord. Moses leads them in a confirmation of the covenant with God. He sacrifices and splashes half of the blood from the sacrifice onto the altar. The other half he sprinkles on the assembled people, and he tells them, This is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. And then Moses and the priests Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, ascend the slopes of the mountain, 
at some point halfway up, they see God. The Lord manifests himself. And the Bible tells us that, quote, under his feet was something like a pavement made of lapis lazuli, which is a stone from Afghanistan, a a bright blue stone. And the Bible mentions that it was as bright blue as the sky. And then it goes on and says, but God did not raise his hand against these leaders of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and drank. So, after being sprinkled in the blood of the sacrifice, they met a visible manifestation of the Lord in his glory and ate and drank before him. And thus is God's covenant with his people affirmed. As I said, this incident is not well known, but there's hardly a more clear clue of the coming of the Eucharist hidden in the Old Testament. God will restore fellowship communion with us, and it will occur around a meal. As we saw at the beginning of this episode, the Old Testament contains the teachings of the new in the same way that a young plant emerging from the soil contains the flowers and fruit of the mature plant, but in infant form. We can see the future blooms as folded up buds, hints of what is yet to unfold. And so, we could continue through the Old Testament, finding sprouts and buds, hints and clues, foreshadowings of the Eucharist woven throughout its pages. We might, for example, examine God's instructions for the building of the tabernacle, that portable temple, and later the construction of the permanent temple in Jerusalem. We would see its sacred vessels and objects, its liturgies and sacrifices, as infant forms of the celebration of the Mass and Holy Communion. We might mention the Torah, a less well-known liturgical sacrifice that pointed to the Eucharist almost as clearly as the Passover. In Hebrew, it meant thanksgiving, which is exactly what Eucharista means in Greek. It was offered after someone had been rescued from a life-threatening situation. A lamb would be sacrificed, bread and wine would be consecrated, and served as a sacred meal with prayer and songs of thanksgiving. Or we might mention the showbread, 12 loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel that were always on display on a sacred table in the temple. And we might recall how David and his men, when they were in a desperate situation, ate the showbread to save their lives. And how later Jesus would mention that as a sign that God intends his worship to be life-giving. Another Eucharistic clue. Or we might think of numerous incidents from the lives of the prophets. Like, for example, when the prophet Elijah in 1 Kings 19 is running for his life from the wicked queen Jezebel. He flees into the desert and is close to dying from starvation. But the Lord sends him an angel with a loaf of bread and a jug of water that miraculously sustains him for 40 days. Another Eucharistic clue. Or we might look at the fourth chapter of 2 Kings, in which there are four separate incidents of miraculous feedings at the hands of the prophet Elisha. In the last of the four, a servant brings Elisha 20 loaves of barley bread. The prophet tells him to use it to feed his 100 followers. 
The servant says, how can I set this before a hundred men? To which Elisha replies, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. And then the servant set it before them, and they ate and they had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. This is a clear foreshadowing of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with just a few barley loaves and fish, which is itself a foreshadowing of the Eucharist. Clues within clues within clues. I could go on and on, literally doing a whole series of episodes just unpacking all of the Eucharistic hints and clues and reflections that are contained both in the Old and New Testaments. But you get the idea. The Eucharist is the culmination of the gospel. That's why the Catechism of the Catholic Church calls it the source and summit of our faith. And so, for today, I'll just leave you with these words from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 55. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend your money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. If you'd like to learn more about the Eucharist, follow the rest of the episodes in this series on the podcast, or check out my course on the Eucharist at the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization. You can find links for both at consideringcatholicism.com. Thank you for listening. My name is Greg Smith. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, would you please hit the like and subscribe buttons wherever you get your podcasts? and please share it with others. And if you're curious about the Catholic worldview and faith, the Church and its saints, or Catholic history, culture, and art, then visit consideringcatholicism.com and email me to let me know what you think, greg at consideringcatholicism.com.